Hey, welcome everyone. I'm Don Newton, host of Open Air on KPOV 889 FM, High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. Airing Wednesdays at 5 p.m., Open Air is a weekly one-hour entertainment talk show featuring conversations with authors, local youth, entertainers, sports figures, and more. She's a real woman with a real life. She's someone you can relate to. Open Air with Don Newton. Welcome to Open Air. I'm your host, Don Newton. My guest today is an American entrepreneur, author, philanthropist, and prominent thought leader on financial inclusion, economic empowerment, and financial dignity. His name is John Hope Bryant, and he joins me today to discuss his book, How the Poor Can Save Capitalism. Bryant has a surprising message for business and political leaders. America's poor have the power to turn our economy around, and he has real-life case examples and success stories to prove it. We're talking with author John Hope Bryant. First of all, it's an honor to be speaking with you, and I love the content of this book. Hopefully it's going to turn people's thought processes around and, and maybe let them step back and look at what we think the poor are and who they are and what we can do to maybe resolve maybe the economic status of not only these individuals, but our nation as a whole too. So I really appreciate this work that you're doing. Thank you. Tell us about this book. Why did you decide to write this book? I came to the conclusion that we've been looking for love in all the wrong places as a nation, that we have the right intention but the wrong approach maybe even the wrong strategy, that, to quote my friend Jim Clifton, the chairman and CEO of Gallup, we've been digging in the wrong holes, looking for jobs, that poverty itself had been fundamentally misdiagnosed. And if you don't know what you're looking for, it's really hard to find it. And if what you think you're looking for is something outside of you that has no connection with you, is actually somehow maybe dirty and demeaning and maybe even deserves its fate, then you certainly give it no time and attention. And that there was an economic motivator that, that neutralized the race argument that we've been really, you know, in this nation arguing about, if you want to argue about something, we've been arguing about the wrong things, that the color today is not white, black, red, brown, or yellow, but green. And if you deal with class, you get race for free. And I guess finally that growing up, I had gotten a shot, a really good one, had success. I grew up in a so-called poor neighborhood. So what what was special about me? Because I'm, I'm no rocket scientist. I'm smart, but I'm no rocket scientist. <laughs> what, why did I make it? And, you know, uh, I decided to unpack power and unpack free enterprise and capitalism and repack it with p- poor and struggling people in mind. and came up with a grand set of conclusions that is all embedded in this book, which is now a bestseller. And congratulations on that, too, by the way. Thank you. Define modern poverty. What is that? How do we define that today? It is half low self-esteem. It is just fundamentally a lack of belief in yourself. If you don't know who you are by, say, 9 in the morning, then somewhere around dinner time, somebody's going to tell you who you are. Those who have the greatest success in this country have enormous sense of self-confidence, belief in themselves. Don, just hearing your voice and talking for the few minutes we've been talking, I can tell that None of us are perfect. We all have insecurities. But I can tell that you picked up some confidence, at the very least professional confidence, and you believe in what you're doing. And and that gets communicated over this phone line. Because if you don't believe, I'm not going to believe, and vice versa. 
So half of, of poverty is just fundamental uh, lack of belief in yourself. The second part of poverty is uh, crappy role models. You know, why am I a businessman? My daddy was because a banker came in my classroom when I was nine years old and taught a course in financial literacy and home economics. And I remember looking at this really sharp guy in a blue suit and a white shirt and a red tie and saying, what do you do? For, and I, said to, I actually said to him in Compton, California, what do you do for a living? And how would you get rich legally? <laughs> and, um, Don, I was dead serious. I mean, I wasn't kidding. I mean, I had never seen a dude with a suit on in my neighborhood. Everybody was, who my neighborhood was successful was a thug, not because they wanted to be a, be a thug, but because there were a few economic, viable economic obvious options, and th- there were no role models in my neighborhood who were business people, and nobody wore suits. And he told me he was a banker and finance entrepreneurs. <laughs> I lost my mind. I said, I don't, I don't know what an entrepreneur is, but I want to be one. And uh, the next year I became an entrepreneur. Well, first a business owner. I started at the neighbor candy house in my den. Uh, after investigating with the corner liquor store, the candy that he was selling, and I came to the conclusion he was selling the wrong kind of, kind of, <laughs> wrong kind of candy, but of course, the, being a kid, he discounted me, the owner of the store. So I went to go work for him three weeks, for three weeks as a box boy to do research, and then I quit. <laughs> then I put him out of the candy business. And <laughs> And and so that's role modeling. The opposite of that, Don, is if you look at a poor, uh, an urban poor neighborhood, and you see kids who want to be rap stars, athletes, and drug dealers. Why is anybody surprised that that's what people want to grow up, grow up to be in those neighborhoods? It's not that the kids are dumb or stupid. They're brilliant. They're actually just modeling what they see. We're all modeling what we see, and everybody's aspirational. But but when your when your role models are limited and your environment is crappy, that's the third dimension of poverty is a crappy environment. You hang around nine broke people, I guarantee you'll be the tenth. And then the last two pieces of poverty are aspiration and opportunity. Those are the five dimensions of what we call the hope doctrine on poverty. Uh, Crappy self-esteem, crappy role models, a crappy environment, crappy aspiration, code word for hope, most dangerous person in the world is a person with no hope, and crappy opportunity. Why are kids dropping out of high school? They say, what's the point? They're dropping out mentally in middle school. They're looking around and seeing no education is not connected with aspiration. Again, I've already explained the urban poverty environment, but rural white poverty is not much better. Uh, and they're saying, what's, you know, what's the point? Why, why, why struggle? Let me just go out here and sell some drugs or take some shortcut. So we're going to reconnect education with aspiration. Well, I think, too, that really stands out in your book, at least for me, is that you're challenging perceptions, myths, and stereotypes because poverty, you know, and and I was in reading your book, I caught on to this, too, is that it's not necessarily the financial condition or a financial statement. It is the state of being. And even if you give somebody the tools, they have to have that inner belief and that inner hope those things that aren't tangible, that is something that I don't think is, we, we give a lot of attention to, especially whether it is our inner city, it's our neighborhoods, wherever we're coming from, when you talk about role models, but our media seems to be pounding that message as well, is that, you know, using that to exploit for political reasons, which I think is really unfortunate. Yes, I mean, we've become a nation that's become, become experts in what we are against, because people don't have answers. The Bible says where well, there is no vision that people perish. And when you don't have an answer, it's really easy to, to demonize and to point fingers and to say all oh, that's wrong in the world. Look, Occupy Wall Street, as an example, they say that, it, that, that they are part of a civil rights movement. No, they're not. Now, I admire Occupy Wall Street in the sense that it wasn't racial. I mean, there are more white kids out there with Occupy signs than anybody else. There's more po- poor white people in America than poor anybody else. Again, this is not a racial issue. But it was, all, it was, it was a collection of all frustrations. 
My problem with Occupy Wall Street, the reason I'm angry with them is that they were only angry. They didn't have a plan. They didn't, ha they didn't say, okay, down with capitalism and up with plan B. They just said down with capitalism. And capitalism, as an example, is a horrible system except for every other system. <laughs> um, or, you know, as Shimon Perez told me one day when I was in Jordan, uh, he, he was, of course, the leader in Israel, but he was in, he was in Jordan. We were together. He said, even if you want to distribute, distribute money like a socialist, even if that's what you want to do, you have to first collect money like a capitalist. And so I think that when you don't have answers and you don't have solutions, you start demonizing and pointing fingers and throwing people under the bus. And, and that's when people start to really lose hope and stop, stop believing in their leaders, start not becoming skeptical, Don, but cynical, and cynical is when you don't have hope. And I think that that's, if, if there's, a, a, I think, a thread that goes through the American fi fabric uh, is that we are not a country, we're an idea, and we can make her any, what, anything we want. And I think your listeners right now can resonate with what I'm saying, that our so-called leaders have basically gotten in front of us and put their finger in the air and figured out what, which way the, 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 the mob is going and their frustrations are aiming, and gotten in front of them and said, okay, I'll lead you. That's not leadership. And uh, so I went back to you know, a leader we all can respect, Abraham Lincoln, and found out something not really told in history, which is, this, which is the, the fact that after Emancipation Proclamation, right after the Civil War, he signed a bill creating the Freedmen's Bank, March 3, 1865, whose mission was to teach freed slaves about money. Now, he thought the most important thing he could do, Don, after the Civil War, was to teach free, freed slaves about free enterprise and capitalism. And then the backstory is and he gave them 40 acres and a mule. Not, I say gave, they built a country for free. So the, really it was a bit of a compensation for unpaid labor. But that land needed a, a basis, and the basis was to free it up through access to capital, use it as collateral, to then let them use their, their hands to toil the, uh, and seed the soil and to build it up with their own self-determination. And how radical is that, Don? In 1865, a president who was going to give them land, collateral, access to capital, and knowledge about how free enterprise and capitalism works. He was killed three weeks later, six weeks later, March, uh, I'm sorry, April, uh, I think it was April 16th. He was assassinated. And the whole dream fell away. We don't have time for, on a radio program to get into the details, although I covered in the book how the pork and save capitalism uh, in some detail. But that's the reason why poor people are poor. My message is this. It's not like poor and struggling families got the memo and screwed it up. They never got the memo. And when I say poor and struggling class families, I also mean the teetering class. People who make $50,000 a year or less with too much month at the end of their money. And that should mean a good portion of the good people who are listening to your program. In Oregon. There's a couple myths that stood out to me that you, you wrote about in the book that I think might be common perceptions of people that are not poor, is that the poor people are not relevant to our economic growth. That, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, try to, I try to respond with a straight face, but it's, just, <laughs> it's such a silly presumption that people make, and thank you for asking the question, and it was a great setup for the answer, but the only reason I named this book How the Poor Can Save Capitalism is because I'd be laughed out of rooms if I had named this book How the Poor Are Already Saving Capitalism. <laughs> the, 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 not only are the poor not irrelevant and the struggling class and the teetering class, but they're half of America, $50,000 a year or less. They're 70% of the largest economy on the planet. We're a $16, $17 trillion a year economy, yet 70% consumer-driven. 
and uh, and they take 90% on average of every dollar they make, Don, and put it back in the economy because they can't afford not to. And, and every product that is driving the American economy was basically created for the well-to-do, but only became a, a shareholder sustainable company that has driven GDP and growth and jobs because at least of these God's children got a hold of it. English, an automobile industry. Henry Ford paid his workers from, he was paying them 250 a day, as in $2.50. He doubled it to $5 a day so they could afford to buy the cars that they were making. And voila, you had a middle class. But that was originally, you know, automobiles were a luxury for a very few. Cell phones. You know, cell phones used to be a Motorola brick, 15 pounds on your shoulder, uh, $3,000. It was a toy uh, accessory for the rich. But now Africa will probably be the first wireless continent jumping right over landline phones. And those, nobody giving, nobody's giving cell phones away. These are shareholder-driven companies, largest retailer in the world. Walmart, not, not Neiman Marcus, not Nordstrom's. God bless them, by the way. Those are all good stores. But, but the largest retailer is Walmart, which serves the least of these God's children. Now, what about the other myth? Poor people did this to themselves. I hear that a lot. Um, I'll let you finish that. <laughs> it's, just, it's just ridiculous. I mean, this is just, first of all, again, I go through this in the book. The book is very fact-based. The majority of Americans will be poor by government statistical definitions at least one year of their life. Majority of Americans. That if you right now are making $45,000 a year, okay, let's say Bend, Oregon, you're making $30,000 a year. You're struggling to make ends meet. You actually feel poor. So what is poverty? Let's start there. If you're talking about, the, the folks are talking about so-called poor people in the literal sense, as I've already said, there are more poor whites in America than poor anybody else. So are we talking about black and brown people? We're talking about black and brown people. Then I'd say, you know, let's look at the environment with which they uh, grew up. God didn't just put brilliant people in white suburban neighborhoods. He didn't just endow Steve Jobs and Bill Gates with brilliance. They happened to be seated when they were born in an incredibly supportive environment. What do we think a drug dealer is? If not an a, a immoral, unethical, probably brilliant entrepreneur who happened to, get, to have the, the, the crappy luck to grow up, to, to be born into a family with probably no daddy, a mother who's working two jobs. He don't see her. She's trying to make, make ends meet. His role models are all messed up. His environment is completely negative. His aspiration is in the toilet, his hope, and his opportunity is <laughs> to be a drug dealer. I mean, what, if a, what is a drug dealer if not an unethical? And, you know, he needs to pay his debt to society. He needs to go to jail, all those things. I'm not, I'm not talking about a moral statement here. But here's one thing that drug dealer is not, dumb. He understands import, export, finance, marketing, wholesale, retail, customer service, security, territory. <laughs> These are not dumb people. They're misdirected people. And so we've been locking them up, fine. And then we throw away the key, not fine. We need, to, we, we need to understand that a saint is a sinner that got up. We need to understand that we need everybody. Today, your competitor is not the black or white or brown guy sitting next to you or, li- or wants to live next to your house. It's China. It's India. It's Africa. It's Latin America, all of which who want our stuff. We don't have the luxury anymore to get into this blame game and start pointing fingers. If we do, we're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You can take no pleasure from the fact that there's a hole in my end of our boat because we're all in this mess together. We need everybody rowing this boat together. And, that's, and so where do jobs come from? They come from 
uh, small businesses. We're, I mean, every big business it was once a small business. We all, you know, talk about these big businesses and leading leading America. But you know, Walmart was again this guy with a pickup truck and a little storefront. And all these big businesses were once small ones, and most of them created by hello poor people. The, the guy who created Bank of America, it was an Italian guy, Bank of Italy, and everybody wrote him off as a nutcase. He literally <laughs> started a bank. Uh, on a bar top, uh, with a, sitting on a bar stool, so the word bank comes from banquette, from the ba- it's the top of a bar. But he started that in a very uh, modest uh, way. UPS was a guy with a hundred bucks and a bicycle. Forty percent of the Fortune 500 immigrants. So these are these were you know once poor people who couldn't get a job, so decided to go create one. So we need to stop acting like we've always had success and we've always had sustainability. And we and everybody just you know is born with a great environment. If you were born with, as I was, with a loving mother and a father who supported you and were great role models, and you had a great education and and you had a great social network, which then hooked you up with jobs and opportunities later, consider yourself blessed and lucky. But by the grace of God, go I, the homeless guy, the inner city guy, the poor rural white person, the 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 person too much month at the end of their money. By no factor other than, unfortunately, the circumstances that they were born in. What we need to do is stop blaming, because we're all screwed up in some way. I mean, I call it the bum factor. I've got bums in my own family. It's 20% of, wherever you turn, 20% of everything is bums. 20% of Republicans are bums. 20% of Democrats are bums. 20% of people in my family are bums. There is no perfect. So we have got to remake America how we want her to be. And I believe in her potential, and that's why I wrote this book, Focused on Solutions. Because it's so easy to demonize, to criticize, and to isolate. But as the book articulates, the people we're talking about, Don, we used to be those people. Everybody who's talking, go back three generations in your family. Anybody listening and you say, oh, this guy doesn't make any sense. Okay, fine. Go back three, four generations in your family and tell me you don't see struggle. Who is this book for? Who do you want reading this book? I want the average uh, American. And I want business builders. And I want our educators, because we've got to start teaching our kids in a different way. And I want corporate leaders. And I want civic and government leaders, i.e. mayors, because we really uh, need a reset in this country. Let me give one uh, example of what I mean. We've been telling our kids go to, to go to school K-12. through Great, do that. Graduate from college. Definitely do that. Go work for a big company or a big government. Neither are what you're hiring, Don. And governments are broke. And that's not where jobs come from. And then we wonder why we're depressed, distressed, and, and wondering whether our kids are going to do as good as we have done. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. Here's where jobs come from. 300 million people, 7 billion people on the planet, 300 million people in America, 26, 27 million companies in America. Of those that employ one person or more of the 26, 27 million companies, 6 million. Out of the 6 million that employ one person or more, how many employed 10,000 people or more? 974, last time I checked the number, uh, the number fluctuates, but let's say sub 1,000. That's what we're telling our kids to go work, who aren't hiring, by the way, because they don't grow on people, they grow based on efficiencies. So where do jobs come from? Here's Bend, Oregon, by the way. Half of all jobs are 100 employees or less in America. 70% of all jobs in America, 500 employees or less. And all job growth comes from startups, small business owners, entrepreneurs, and shoot-ups in year three through year seven. Now, Don, let me walk you and your listeners through their typical week. They go to the barbershop or the beauty salon, six people, eight people, 12 people. They went to a restaurant, 
This is the biggest number. Maybe 25 people, employees. They went to the dentist, six people, went to the doctor's office, 10 people, went to the architecture firm if they're, if they're lucky to go plan the, the design their house, six people, went to the law firm if they're really lucky, what, five people, 12 people. You know, my point is the printing shop, the copy sh- shop, five people, 10 people, 20 people. These are all small businesses. This is what's driving the largest economy in the world, but we pay no attention to it. And for the first time since, uh, since America starts counting these numbers, Don, we've had more small business deaths than small business starts in 2011, so says the U.S. Census. So we're, we're arguing about this, all this silly stuff, and we're blaming poor people for being poor, and we're, we're, you know, I don't know what we're arguing about anymore. We just, we, we just, we just were frustrated. If, you wanna, if your listeners want to identify poverty, uh, here's the new way to identify it. Go to an urban inner city community, black and brown. Or go to a white rural community. Go to outside of a military base and look for this. Check casher next to a payday loan lender, next to a rent-to-own store, next to a title lender, next to a liquor store. That's not racism. That's target marketing. That's poverty. When you don't even know you're being enslaved, when you don't even know you're being taken advantage of. What does this work mean to you? It's my life work. I mean, this is, uh, in my opinion, this is how you, this is how you save America. This is my contribution. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be an elected official. I don't want to be president of the United States. I don't want to be, I, I don't, I don't want to be a mayor or a governor or a congressman. Uh, that's a whole other interview of why I think, uh, I mean, it's not, I, I think that public service is fantastic. But I just think that the, the 20th century was about government. The 21st century is about economics. If you want freedom today, it, it has to be through self-determination. And you cannot self-determine yourself in an economic world without understanding the language of money, without getting the memo. And without ownership, it just doesn't happen. The book is How the Poor Can Save Capitalism. The author is John Hope Bryant. Where can our listeners learn more about this book and learn more about you and your work? Go to uh, johnhopebryant.com. Go to operationhope.org. So johnhopebryant.com is my personal blog. Operationhope.org is my personal philanthropy. Google search or Internet search or Yahoo search, whatever your search engine is, Project 5117. John Hope Bryant, it has been an an Absolute pleasure speaking with you. My deep honor. Call me back. Call me. Call me to call me to call in any time. I'd, okay. I'd love to come back. Thank you so much. God bless you. Hey, thanks for listening to Open Air, and a special thank you to my guest, John Hope Bryant, author of How the Poor Can Save Capitalism. For more information about John Hope Bryant and his work, you can visit johnhopebryant.com. Open Air is written, produced, and hosted by Don Newton. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and our program schedule, go to kpov.org.